Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for this weekend that we have had together. And Father, we feel in some ways kind of like that it's like in Acts chapter 2 when, when we spent time together. Father, when we were sharing meals together, when we just had good times together. And Father, we want to be that kind of family. We want to be that kind of congregation. So, Father, we pray that you will bind us closer together. Father, help us to have more love and compassion for each other. Help us to have mercy on each other. And, Father, draw us closer to you and pray, Father, that you will help us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, because we want to be transformed into his image. And, Father, we pray this through his name, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So, over the last several weeks, we've been focusing on the book of James. We call it a book, but really it's a letter. It's a letter that was written centuries ago by Jesus' younger brother, James. And James' story itself is a fascinating story because it's a story of dramatic transformation. James was transformed from Jesus' embarrassed and unbelieving younger brother. He was transformed from a young man who was convinced that his big brother, Jesus, was crazy. He was transformed from that into the spiritual father of Jesus' church in Jerusalem. And this remarkable transformation came about because of the wonderful reality of the resurrection. The wonderful reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The wonderful reality of the resurrection of the Messiah, of Jesus the Savior. And as an aside, I want to say I hope you're looking forward to next Sunday, Easter Sunday, when we'll devote all of our attention to talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But back to James, the now transformed James. Now he's the spiritual father of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And he wrote this letter. But it's not just any letter. It's a letter that's full of deep love and deep concern for his spiritual children. And he's deeply concerned about them because they've been scattered. They've been scattered by persecution outside of Jerusalem. They're separated now from James, and they're separated from their other spiritual mentors. And they were facing trials, and they were facing temptations unlike any that they had ever faced before. So James, before the internet, before there were phones, James did what people did back then. He sat down, and he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter that's full of advice, a letter that's full of counsel, And for us, we need to know that that letter is as relevant to us today as it was to the people who first read it centuries ago. And we have been reading and we have been studying James's letter as if it was written directly to us. As if it was written directly to us from our dear, beloved brother, James. And as we read and as we study James's letter, we see that there's a common theme throughout the letter. There's one topic that's foremost on James's mind, foremost in his heart. And that is the fact that disciples of Jesus Christ aren't identified by the fact that they hear God's word. They're not even identified by the fact that they believe God's word. But James tells us over and over in his letter that disciples of Jesus Christ can be recognized because they are actually living out the word of God. As James says that they are doers of God's word. And so as we study James' letter, we are determined as individuals and we are determined as a church to not only hear James's words, 
but to also put his words into practice, to be doers of his words. And so throughout this time that we've been in James, we individually and as a church, we've been making commitments. We've been making commitments to each other and making commitments to God that we're going to live out a variety of we will statements. And today, James will call us back to being people who will, will live out our faith. So James reminds us that true faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith in Jesus Christ, always, let me stress that word again, always produces, always results in action. Saving faith is active. True faith is alive. So as James writes this letter, we need to know that he's not calling his spiritual children to something that they haven't ever experienced before. What James is doing, he's calling them back. He's calling them back to true faith. He's calling them back to saving and active faith. We need to understand that this letter was originally written to people who had experienced living and active faith, and they had experienced it firsthand. See, these are first century Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. These are Pentecost Christians, if you will. These are men and women who had either heard and responded to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, or they had worshipped with people who had heard and responded to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. See, this letter is written to Acts chapter 2 Christians. So let's listen to what those Christians had experienced in the past, what they had experienced in Jerusalem. As we pick up their story, we need to know some background. We need to know that a lot has happened in a very short period of time. Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has been tortured. Jesus has been put on trial. He's been killed on a cross. And Jesus has been buried in a tomb. And Jesus' distressed followers have scattered, and everyone, everyone believes that Jesus' story has come to a very tragic end. But then, three days later, later, the tomb is empty. Jesus has been resurrected. He's been raised from the dead. And as he appears to a variety of people in a variety of places, another transformation takes place. Scared, weak confused, unbelieving people are transformed into bold, strong, sure men and women who have a living and an active faith. And then we begin to read in our Bible about transformed people, transformed people like James, transformed people like Peter. And then after Jesus is taken up into heaven and the Holy Spirit has come down on Jesus' now transformed followers Peter stood up in front of a large crowd of Jews and he said these words. I'm in Acts chapter 2 beginning with verse 22. Peter said to that crowd, he said, People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 32. 
Peter went on and he said, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses to that fact. He's exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Verse 36, Peter says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the people responded. When they heard this from Peter, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, You should repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then verse 41 Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything, had everything in common. Selling their possessions and selling their goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, these Christians that James is writing to had experienced living faith. They had acted out of their faith. They had responded out of faith because they had faith that Jesus is the Christ. And when they understood for the very first time, when they understood who this man Jesus really was, when they understood that he was the Son of God, that he is the promised Messiah, that he's the Savior of the world, These people knew that such wonderful and powerful knowledge demanded action. It demanded a response on their part. So after they had listened to Peter's sermon, they weren't content to just have knowledge about Jesus. They weren't content to just have belief in Jesus. They knew they needed to take action. So they asked what is really a very crucial question. They didn't ask, brothers, what do we need to know? They said, brothers, what do we need to do? What must we do? What action must we take? And when they heard the answer, they acted out of their faith. They repented. They turned away from their old way of living, and they went down in the water, and they were baptized. And God was faithful, and God acted on their behalf, and God forgave their sins, and God gave them the Holy Spirit, and he brought salvation to their lives. But that wasn't the end of the story. There was more change on the way. There was more transformation on the way. The lives of these newly baptized Christians were transformed by their faith. These men and women were changed by their faith. They acted differently. They lived differently. They became devoted to hearing God's word taught. 
They became devoted to not just hearing the word, they became devoted to doing the word. They were in each other's homes. They ate together. They prayed together. They praised together. And they took care of each other's needs. This faith that they shared, it led them to demonstrate their love and mercy for each other by giving to anyone who had physical needs. See, James's spiritual children had experienced what life is like when you share transforming faith. What life is like when you share rich faith. What life is like when you share vibrant faith. What life is like when you share active faith. When you share living faith. And James knew this was the kind of faith that they had had in the past. And he knows that they had that kind of faith in the past because he was there. He'd been in their homes. He'd shared their meals. He had prayed with them. He had praised with them. And he had shared goods with them. And James had been transformed right along with them. Transformed by a faith that was alive. And it's that kind of faith that James is afraid is beginning to fade away. And because he's afraid that it's beginning to fade away, he writes these words. James chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go, I wish you well. Or if you say, Keep warm and well fed but do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. But I say, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Imagine the people hearing this for the very first time. I think this had to be devastating to hear. To hear that James, their beloved spiritual mentor, is concerned that their once vibrant and living faith is dying, is fading away. Dying not because they aren't saying the right religious things, but dying because they have stopped doing the right things. And as we have seen James has been building up to this point in his letter for some time now. We'll remember that earlier in his letter, as he warned them about the importance of being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, he also added that pure and faultless religion, pure and faultless religion is acting on behalf of the helpless. The example he uses is taking care of the widows and taking care of the orphans. So James wants to know, he wants to know, is your faith alive? And if it is, then where is the pure religion? If your faith is alive, where is the action for the most helpless among you? And we've also seen that James is very concerned that seekers, that visitors, people who come into their assemblies were being treated differently. He was concerned that the rich were being shown favoritism and the poor were being discriminated against. 
So James wants to know, where is your faith? He wants to know, is your faith alive? And if it is alive, then where is the love for your neighbors? Where is the love for all of your neighbors? James wants to know, is your faith alive? If it is, then where is your love and your compassion that's shown in action? Where is your, where is your mercy? And now at this point in his letter, James wants to know, wants to know, is your faith alive? Is your faith vibrant? Is your faith active? Is your faith transforming you? He wants to know, how can you claim to be a believer in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, while at the very same time refusing to offer even the slightest aid, even the least little bit of help to your family, the least little bit of help to Christian brothers and sisters who are in dire, who are in desperate need? And his answer to that question is also absolutely devastating. Because he says to them, you can't. You can't. You can't claim to have faith in Jesus Christ while at the same time refusing to offer the least little bit of help to your brothers and sisters who find themselves in desperate need. You can't. James says that's not what true faith looks like. That's not what saving faith looks like. It just doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like that because true saving faith will always produce good works. And for me, at least, hearing these words of James today is every bit as devastating to me as it must have been then. Because once more, as James has been doing for me, James hits awfully close to home. Because I, if I'm honest, because we, if we're being honest... Most of us who are here today don't really see ourselves in that needy brother or sister, in that destitute brother or sister. Instead, we see ourselves in the brothers and sisters who can help but don't. And what makes this even more personal to me is that I can even see myself in the words they choose to use when they refuse to help. Go, I wish you well. Keep warm. Be well fed. See, it's as if loving sounding words and compassionate sounding words can be a substitute for love and compassion that acts for someone. But James says, where's the mercy? And it makes me realize and it makes me ashamed to remember the times that I have provided, provided loving and compassionate words instead of loving and compassionate actions. See, James reminds us that the pat religious answers, the pat religious answers from people who are able to help provide for another's needs, those pat religious answers aren't good works. They're merely a religious cover for the failure to act. Those rehearsed, those rote, those religious-sounding answers from those of us who are able to help provide for a brother or sister's needs, those aren't good works. They're ultimately empty words that give us religious cover. They allow us to do nothing but still feel good about ourselves. 
Those may not be exactly the words that I use. They may not be the words that we normally use. The words we're more likely to use today are things like, I'll pray for you. Or, God bless you. Now, don't get me wrong. Telling someone that you'll pray for them, if you actually follow up and pray for them, is a wonderful thing to do. But it's no substitute for helping provide for their needs if you have the ability to do so. And don't get me wrong. Speaking God's blessings on someone is a beautiful thing to do. But it's no substitute for actually blessing people by helping provide for their needs if you're able to do that. In fact, saying, I'll pray for you and may God bless you. That acknowledges that God cares about those people and it acknowledges that God is in control of the situation. But it fails to recognize that we are part of God's plan. That we are part of God's care. See, living faith recognizes that God most frequently answers prayers on behalf of his children through the actions of other of his children. Through their brothers and sisters. And God most frequently blesses his children through the actions of other children. Through the actions of their brothers and sisters. See, we and our actions are often the answer to the prayers that have been lifted up on behalf of our brothers and sisters. We and our actions are most frequently the way that God chooses to bless his children. We share with those who have needs. We share not just prayers, we share not just words of blessing, but we also share what we have that can help meet each other's needs. And we share because words without actions have no value. They don't bring any benefit to the destitute brother or the destitute sister. And we share because faith without actions has no value for the one who claims to believe. James reminds us that isn't active faith. That isn't living faith. That isn't saving faith. That isn't transforming faith. And faith that doesn't transform our lives, that doesn't change who we are, that doesn't change how we act, that doesn't change how we share, that faith is dead. It's useless. It's lifeless. It doesn't help other people and it won't save us. So James reminds us, faith without works simply doesn't work. It's dead. And because he is so adamant in declaring that faith without works cannot save us, and because he is so passionate about the necessity of our faith leading to faithful actions, James has been accused of a few things. He's been unfairly accused of promoting the notion that we are saved by our works. James has been unfairly accused of of promoting the notion that we are saved by what we do. That we are saved by our own actions. We need to understand, James isn't saying that at all. If James was still alive, we could ask him, James, are we saved by our works? And his answer would be, no. No way, that's not what I'm saying. 
No, James believes like we believe, that we are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus and only Jesus can save us. But James also believes, like I believe, that we are saved by faith for works. We're saved by faith for works. Because living faith, saving faith, always leads to action. Saving faith always leads to obedient action. Because we have a Savior who calls us to action. He calls us to action that's motivated by our great love for our God. He calls us to action that's motivated by our great love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what we're going to do today as we end this time, we're going to end it with a call to action. So if you are here today, and your faith in Jesus Christ is strong, you believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. If you really have faith that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Savior... I want to ask you the Acts chapter 2 question. I'm going to ask that question on behalf of all of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. And that question is this. What will we do? What will we do because we have faith in Jesus Christ? What actions will we take because of our faith in Jesus Christ? And I want to suggest seven answers To those questions. What will we do? Well, number one, what will we do? We will repent. If our faith isn't living, if our faith isn't active, if we see in our own lives that we believe and say the right things, but we don't live and do the right things, what will we do? We will repent. We'll turn away from our dead faith and we'll capture or we'll recapture a living faith. What will we do? We'll repent. Well, number two, what will we do? We will be baptized. If we do believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and if we believe that resurrection was to defeat sin and to defeat death, And if we haven't joined in his death and his burial and his resurrection by being buried ourselves in the water of baptism, to be resurrected as a new person, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, what will we do? We will be baptized. Number three, what will we do? We will love the Lord completely. We will love the Lord completely. We'll love him with all we have. We'll love him with all we are. We'll be willing to forsake everything and anything for our love for God. What will we do? We'll love the Lord completely. Number four, what will we do? We'll love our neighbors as ourselves. What does that love look like? Well, that's love that wants the best for our neighbors. We'll be people who do pray for them. We'll be people who do ask God's blessings on them. But we'll also be people who act, who act to help meet their needs. What will we do? We will love our neighbors as ourselves. Number five, what will we do? Well, we'll practice pure religion. We'll take the side of the weakest. 
We'll take the side of the most vulnerable among us. And we'll provide for them what they can't provide for themselves. What will we do? We'll practice pure religion. Number six, what will we do? We will show mercy. We will have love and compassion for all of our neighbors. And we will put our love and compassion into action by showing God's favor to all people. What will we do? We'll show mercy. Number seven, what will we do? We will be transformed. We'll be transformed by our faith, the faith that we have in the resurrected Christ. We'll allow Jesus to change us. We will allow his spirit to change us. We will be different people because we serve Jesus Christ. And we'll be transformed to look more and more like our master. What will we do? We'll have living faith. We'll have faith that acts. We'll have faith that comes about from serving the risen, the risen Christ. So in a moment, we're going to stand up and we're going to sing a couple of songs together. They may seem like songs, but they're really not songs. What they really are is they're prayers. We're really going to be singing prayers to God together. The prayers that we're going to sing are going to ask God to make us servants. They're prayers that ask God to help us bring our faith alive. They're prayers that commit us to loving the Lord completely. They're prayers that commit us to loving our neighbors as ourselves. They're prayers that ask God to give us the strength to always show mercy. Prayers that God will help transform us into the servant image of our Master, Jesus Christ. But these prayers we will sing are also a time to act. They're a time to act if we need to act. So let me say to you, if you are here and your faith is dead, or you know that your faith is dying, and you know that you need to repent, you know that you need to turn away from your dead life to a life that's now lived with living in active faith, We would love to help. And if you are here, and if your faith hasn't yet led you into the water to join with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, if you haven't yet been baptized, we would like to help. But we can't help if we don't know what your needs are. So I want to close by saying, won't you let us know about your needs? And you can let us know about your needs in a few different ways. Traditionally, what we do is we call this an invitation song when we stand up. And one of the things that you can do is you can come to the front and you can let us know what your needs are because we would like to help. That's very uncomfortable for some people and we understand that. So during the song, you can also make your way to the back and ask for directions to room 104. And in that room will just be a couple of men, a couple of our elders. And they would love to help you with your needs. So you can go there and let them know what your needs are. If even that doesn't sound like something you're ready to do just now, you can do something else. Those green prayer cards that are in front of you, you can write your name, you can write your phone number, and you can write your need on that card and drop it in one of the prayer boxes at the back or at the front. 
And I promise you that, that one of the ministers or one of the elders will contact you on Monday so that we can find out what your needs are so we can help. But we want to help. Won't you respond? Won't you act today while we stand up and we sing this song together?